Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey NTLM Hater Knockreiner. Actually pronounced NTLM right for once. Good news for Corey then, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing an upcoming murder of a network authentication protocol. Uh, Before that, though, we discuss a murder of a web traffic protocol. Uh, and then after that, we discuss murders in an online Sorry. video game. Yeah, and, lots of murder. Uh, Let's stab our way in, Mark. Murders caught by a, a genetic website. Yeah. <laughs> With that, let's go ahead and, yeah, stab our way in. That sounds great. <laughs> so let's uh, start today with the first news story I want to cover. And this one's actually a pretty dang big one in the industry. Uh, So last Tuesday, Cloudflare, Google, and AWS all independently, but I guess kind of jointly, published advisories on a vulnerability in the HTTP2 protocol that they found was being actively exploited in the wild to execute distributed denial of service attacks. Uh, CISA put out an advisory alongside all this pointing to it. Uh, definitely stirred up the pot a bit on another protocol vulnerability, not a implementation vulnerability uh, that has pretty wide ranging impacts. Uh, so in Cloudflare's post, they describe their analysis of this basically attack that started in August of this year uh, that eventually reached record breaking sizes, uh, peaking just above 201 million requests per second which was three times bigger than any previous records. A few other takeaways from that. So this was all generated from just 20,000 machines. And Cloudflare pointed out that the entirety of the web only sees somewhere between one and three billion requests per second. So 201 million requests per second from 20,000 machines is pretty dang insane in terms of request volume. They point out that botnets can grow hundreds of thousands to millions. So definitely imagine a botnet of a million instead of 20,000. And uh, I think we had a prediction. It was probably three or four years ago now that a hacker would take down the internet. We were thinking BGP and and DNS, but I don't know, get a million botnet in this vulnerability before it was fixed. And maybe you could disrupt the whole web. It's yeah, botnets can get pretty big. Imagine the entirety of the web's request volume thrown at a single victim in this case. That's nuts. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that would take down some collateral damage for whatever ISP. Send a three billion request to one one domain. Oopsie. So the uh, they ended up reviewing this and. Uh, Cloudflare points out that Google and AWS services were suffering similar attacks around the same time. So they coordinated a disclosure and acquired a CVE. uh, So CVE 2023-44487, which they're calling the HTTP2 Rapid Request Vulnerability. And again, it's a vulnerability in the HTTP2 protocol standard, meaning in theory, any implementation of it may be vulnerable. It's not like you know, an open SSL flaw. It's like a flaw in SSL itself. Um, so before we dive into the vulnerability, uh, I think we should go over a brief history of how HTTP requests work. Uh, so the older legacy version of HTTP now called 1.1, it's a textual-based request and response method. 
It serializes requests and responses using just plain old ASCII characters and carriage return line feed special characters. Uh, for example, if your web browser goes to loadwatchguard.com, it'll submit a get request for that looks like the, literally the word get slash for the root of the domain, HTTP slash 1.1 for the protocol, a carriage return line feed, then the host header, so watchguard.com, and then two carriage return line feeds to round out that connection. So you can pretty easily view this if you're looking at the packet and like Wireshark, because it's all just printable ASCII characters. The response would come back with the HTTP version, a response code like 200 means okay, 400 something means temporary error, 500 something means permanent error, uh, a few more additional headers, and then the contents of the page. Uh, so it's possible to use a single TCP connection to exchange multiple requests and responses, but it does require strict ordering, meaning your requests and responses have to go in serial, not in parallel. Uh, which also means they can't be multiplexed, meaning if I go to load up resources on a website, I can issue all of my requests, but they all have to be responded to in order, and it's tough to make that parallelized. Now, modern web pages, they're pretty complicated. They load dozens or hundreds of different resources like JavaScript files, images, style sheets, other remote resources. Um, so some of this can take a decent amount of time, I guess, comparatively in the world of internet. Uh, which means if you go visit a page and then quickly navigate to a different page uh, on that same website, your browser has to figure out what to do. It can either wait for all of those queued up responses to load before it's able to even start loading that new page, or it can kill the TCP connection itself uh, and then spin up a new one. And that's pretty inefficient to kill the overall TCP connection. So modern browsers use a pool of TCP connections, usually six per host in order to do some bit of like parallelization and multiplexing for websites. So that's how HTTP 1.1 works, which a lot of websites still use that. Uh, the Firebox still technically uses that for web management. Uh, but HTTP 2 is the new version where it serializes messages into new HTTP 2 frames that include some metadata, including a stream ID, which long story short, um, it allows them to multiplex and handle multiple requests simultaneously. Basically, you can set up any number of streams, typically up to 100 per client and server connection. And in these streams, each individually can make and handle requests. So I can break up a website into chunks, basically, maybe different elements on it, maybe different like pieces of it, different images, whatever, um, and issue all of those simultaneously and it doesn't matter what order they're handled or come back in, um, my web browser and the server are able to multiplex that effectively. Uh, so HTTP2, it has guardrails to prevent denial of service abuse by limiting the maximum number of concurrent open streams, typically around 100 or so. Um, but the streams and the maximum number of concurrent ones, it's a bit nuanced. Uh, so HTTP2 has a few different states that the stream can be in. It goes from idle to open to half-closed to closed, depending on where they are with that communication stream. And only streams in the open or half-closed state uh, contribute to that concurrency limit. So anything in idle or fully closed is not a part of that limit. Uh, so HTTP2 handles... Uh, canceling in-flight requests with a special kind of frame called reset underscore stream, or I guess RST 
underscore stream, which basically instructs the server to stop processing any requests in that stream and abort all of the responses to free up resources. So for example, a browser can cancel requests for uh, images as a user scrolls past them in a think like a long news post or something, where if they're scrolling through quickly, the browser will recognize, okay, I don't even need to load that image anymore. It's out of the viewport. Let's issue a reset on that stream and free up some bandwidth. It's a pretty powerful tool. Uh, and one of the many benefits of using HTTP2 instead of HTTP 1.1. Um, but so that RST, uh, RST underscore stream, reset stream frame, uh, it causes the server, so the other end of the connection, to quickly transition through those states for the stream to half closed and then closed almost instantaneously, which then allows that client to open up another connection on that server almost instantaneously. So pausing here for a second, like conceptually, an HTTP2 server should be able to handle rapidly tearing down streams and forming new ones pretty easily. That's what they're built to do. Uh, but in practice, HTTP is commonly deployed with a HTTP2 proxy, or like a load balancer, in front of other components. So think you know, Cloudflare as your load balancer, your DDoS mitigation provider, your caching system, whatever. And you've got your website server handled behind it. Um, there's different steps along the way of proxying these frames through them. And so there's areas where potentially they can become out of sync if you start opening and tearing down connections uh, pretty quickly. So if you remember the name of this vulnerability, uh, the, what was it, rapid reset vulnerability, you can kind of see where the issue might be coming into play. Um, so in Cloudflare's example, uh, they, when they, how they normally handle a stream to any arbitrary resource. They read the data from it into a buffer on their proxying device. Uh, they then handle that buffer in order. Uh, if they receive a reset stream uh, frame, it causes their local state of that request to be torn down. And then they notify the upstream, so like the web server behind the scenes, that the request has been canceled. In large volumes of chains of requests and resets, their reverse proxy server will read and process all of them, which can cause additional stress on that upstream server as they forward them on. Uh, so they gave an example on their blog of a single TCP packet that had 525 requests. So the initial headers followed immediately by a reset stream frame and all in just one packet. And you can send hundreds of packets a second to any given resource without taking much load. Each of these will build a new stream and immediately tear it down to free up more resources to build a new stream and then immediately tear it back down. So even though you may limit it to 100 simultaneous streams, the reality is those are coming up and down so quickly that they can still eat up a bunch of resources, especially on a caching appliance. Uh, they also pointed out that, so Cloudflare obviously has a lot of layer seven or like application layer security uh, within their reverse proxies. Uh, if you've been to a website while on like an anonymizer or a VPN, you've probably had to solve like CAPTCHA in order to visit a Cloudflare protected website. That's one of the protections they have. Uh, they also do analysis of packets to try and block denial of service protections. But all of that happens behind the TLS decryption proxy for Cloudflare, uh, which means uh, when this attack was occurring, they couldn't even analyze and review the streams that were being formed until they already went and decrypted all of the connections. 
uh, which meant that they were putting an extreme amount of load on their TLS decryption proxy and causing services to go down and come offline. Um, now, how did they, I guess, pausing here, Corey, uh, this attack, it, Cloudflare wrote a, a great blog detailing it. Uh, Google actually wrote a pretty good one too. Uh, Amazon put out a paragraph describing it, which was a little disappointing. Um, but it seems like a big like the issue. images on uh, Cloudflare. Cloudflare yeah. goes through everything you just said in a lot of image detail. So uh, check it out. And like the way they describe it, it's basically it can trigger auxiliary issues like race conditions. Oops, and uh, other services. That's uh, some great menu work. Thank you, Mr. Camera. Uh, where. Uh, Yes, maybe the proxy server or whatever is able to quickly tear stuff up and down, but the things behind the scenes are potentially failing as they try and handle it as well, too. Yeah. And, man, you can see how being able to do 525 of these per packet, and packets are pretty dang small, how this can scale to the point where they're generating that 201 million requests per second from a relatively small botnet. Um, So when it comes to mitigations... Uh, Cloudflare described a few of the ones that they did. So Cloudflare has this concept of a IP jail, as they call it, uh, where it's typically per, per resource they're protecting. Now, if they detect a denial of service against like one of their customer-protected websites, uh, they will uh, jail that IP address from being able to make any additional requests to that specific website. But it's typically limited to that website. They can still potentially access other services. Well, Cloudflare expanded their jail, where now if they detect something exploiting this vulnerability, uh, they will force that IP address to only be able to use HTTP 1.1 requests across all Cloudflare protected services for a while, which is one mitigation. Like That IP can still browse websites, but this type of attack or vulnerability does not exist in that older protocol. Uh, They also said they attempted to limit their maximum concurrent connections to only 64 instead of the kind of general mm-hmm. default of 100 that everyone agrees on. Um, kind of gives the server behind the scenes time to catch up. But they found that that had some collateral damage uh, with, for example, like uh, image uh, galleries or whatever, where if you pull up a website that's an image gallery, it might actually need to legitimately, legitimately make 100 streams concurrently. And when it can only hit 64, the other 34 end up getting reset and canceled and the page fails to load. So they noted they had a bunch of issues for some websites and had to roll back that mitigation. Um, If you're curious about WatchGuard products, by the way, so WatchGuard Cloud were protected by AWS's mitigations on this one. And I mentioned earlier the Firebox, we don't enable HTTP2 on it. It's still just HTTP 1.1 because it's not a high throughput interface on that when it comes to managing it. So we don't really stand to benefit from a whole lot of the HTTP2 uh, functionality on it. Um, but this is one where, again, it's an issue in the protocol with just how it interacts with a quick buildup and a quick teardown of a connection. It's, I, it's basically you re- rely on mitigations outside of the protocol itself to protect against abuse of this attack. So... I guess main takeaway is the big ones have at least fixed it. Uh, we've seen like web servers like Nginx and Apache Nginx, have put out advisories yeah. too, describing how they are uh, mitigating the issue as well. Um, but long story short, for the most part, it seems like most of the internet is probably going to be okay now, uh, thanks to most of the internet being served behind something like 
Cloudflare or uh, Google's caching services anyway. Uh, so moving on, uh, this next story is one that Corey, I'm sure, will have a bit to share on since a lot of this technology existed well before my time in technology. Uh, so Microsoft last week updated their deprecated features documentation and added in a few surprising additions. Uh, first, they added VBS script to their list of deprecated features, uh, effective October of this year. Uh, they noted in another spot that VBS script is being deprecated in feature releases of Windows. Uh, VBS script will be available as a feature on demand before its removal from the operating system. Uh, if you're not familiar with features on demand, uh, they're like different modules you can enable within Windows, typically with a checkbox, sometimes with a reboot, like OpenSSH client and server is a feature on demand. Uh, Internet Explorer is technically a feature on demand now. Uh, they've got the steps recorder, which is like their fancy little snipping thing for recording you stepping through a process. Uh, Windows management interface, command line is one, and WordPad as of September is also a feature on demand. Um, so VB script first appeared, what, 27 years ago? Uh, Corey, you probably remember one of the first network worms back in 2000. Oh, sir, I love you. One of yeah, those. Yeah, the two? I love you yeah. worm uh, was yeah. a VBS script uh, a malware I attack. Think they from both were. Melissa was years as well. Ago. Yep. Taken yeah, over first... by Python and PowerShell. Yeah. If you're not familiar with the I love you worm, so it Windows used to hide extensions for attachments on emails. So this was a, an attachment called um, I love you uh, dot text dot VBS. Uh, when you receive it over email, um, it would just show I love you dot text. So it looks like a text attachment. Did Corey really just Google I love you? Like, what are you expecting to get with that result? Um, well, I anyway, I tried to spell worm, but I misspelled it poem. <laughs> Uh, so when the victim opened up that attachment, uh, Outlook would automatically execute the VBS script, which would then infect the machine by overriding different files or hide itself in some of them. And, and then it would copy itself to all of the addresses in your Windows address book in Outlook and send itself out, uh, which ended up nailing uh, tons of computers around the world. Uh, one other funny little bit of trivia from this, so it was written by a dude in the Philippines, uh, Onel de Guzman. Uh, and at the time, the Philippines did not have any laws that made writing malware illegal. And so he suffered no consequences in this case. And they, it was two months later that they made a law to make other activity like this and some other e-crime activity illegal in the country. Uh, but he, like, he was being monitored by their equivalent of the FBI. They basically said there's no federal crime we can charge him with because at the time, there wasn't a law in the book saying you cannot write malware. Thought that was kind of interesting. A land or a time before the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and similar things like that overseas. Um, so VBS script, it's an active scripting scripting language based on Visual Basic. It was originally designed to effectively replace JavaScript or at least be a competitor to it. Uh, it was used in early versions of Internet Explorer. Uh, obviously, Internet Explorer doesn't exist anymore. We all use different skims of Chromium. Uh, except for me, I use Firefox, trying to keep that 1% of the uh, market share alive just for the sake of competition. Save me. Uh, anyways, uh, but it can also be used in macros and office documents, which Corey, like you just mentioned, in reality, 
PowerShell is a much stronger alternative. This is good. <laughs> you can even use Python in Office documents now in macros. Um, so it makes sense that we're edging towards finally killing off VBScript as a supported protocol. You or forgot Cortana's gone too. That's sad. Maybe no security ramifications, but sad. Not. I, uh, <laughs> it's like losing I, Clippy. I'm happy about it. Cortana is one where I'm not convinced that it's gone for good. Like I have a feeling. I think it's still just, in Teams and stuff. And they're going to probably Outlook. rename like Bing, whatever is it, Bing GPT, Chat GPT. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if I know anything from the Halo universe, you can't actually kill Cortana. She sticks around forever. That's true. That is true. Um, so that's not the only thing that was deprecated, though. Uh, Microsoft also published this blog post on their goals of eventually eliminating NTLM from Windows. Finally, finally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about cracking the hash and passing the hash, which we've been doing for decades, Kerberos should make that. I, I mean, it, it stops past the hash, but it has some other issues. But we still have NTLM. NTLM limping along until mark how are they going to do this how are they yeah. finally going to put the nail on the coffin or the bullet in the head of ntlm so some of the the limitations that have prevented them from killing off ntlm is that up until now kerberos you needed line of sight of a domain controller in order to get your ticket uh you also it did not work with local accounts so like the local administrator account on a windows machine it only worked with domain joined accounts for that trust and as of now, uh, they've got two new additions to Windows 11 to address those scenarios where Kerberos would have had to fall back to NTLM. And these are really the last two main big ones. Uh, so they're adding something called IA Curb, which is a public extension to the Kerberos standard that allows a client to uh, authenticate without having line of sight to a domain controller by instead proxying it through another server that has line of sight to that domain controller. So basically it allows a server to act as a Kerberos proxy without introducing replay vulnerabilities or any issues with the security along the way. So this is a pretty big addition. The other one that I'd argue is a bigger addition is adding local KDC for Kerberos. Uh, so it's built on top of the Windows Security Account Manager and it allows local Kerberos to support local accounts on the machine. So it no longer has to fall back to NTLM for that as well too. Um, now, they're also adding some additional features around NTLM now, mostly designed to help administrators find where they're still using it and snuff it out. Uh, they added that they're updating the event viewer logs uh, for NTLM authentications to show specifically the applications that are uh, requesting the authentication. So you can find and update or remove those applications because uh, they noted that a lot of applications are hard coded to use NTLM instead of attempting to negotiate which authentication method between Kerberos or down to NTLM. Uh, so they do plan on disabling NTLM in Windows 11 at some point in the future. I thought that was an interesting point that they specifically said Windows 11, because if you've been following like the Microsoft yeah. like hubbub lately, it sounds like Windows 12 is right around the corner, which means Windows 11, like yes, they'll support it for a long time, but saying you're going to disable it in Windows 11 and not leaving it ambiguous Windows, maybe that means it's shorter, like sooner rather than later when they intend to at least disable it by default, uh, if not kill it off entirely. 
So Corey, any thoughts on this one? You already had your smart response of finally. Finally. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I'm happy about it. I mean, there is uh, ways to uh, capture Kerberos tickets and, and pass those tickets too, but they're much harder to do. So I think for internal pivoting, if you're worried about someone getting in your network, it's uh, average researcher finds it's only three or four steps to domain admin, usually using pass the hash, you know, either capturing local credentials or a network and eventually getting to uh, some device that has uh, uh, domain admin. But that's typically done because of NTLM and with old pass the hash crap. So getting rid of NTLM will make it a little harder to do internal lateral movement. Not impossible, but harder. Yep, exactly. And even like cracking NTLM passwords these days is relatively trivial, well, not trivial, but way easier than other potential authentication methods too. So I think it's definitely a good move, a long time coming. And I also like, I like that they're making it easy now or easier for administrators and like our team to find where NTLM is still in use by updating Windows event logs to show applications uh, as well. So that's good. They definitely seem committed to snuffing out NTLM at some point here in the near future. Uh, so moving on then, uh, the next story is uh, just this last week or so, about a week and a half ago, a user on a popular underground forum leaked a million lines of data reportedly stolen from the genealogy testing website 23andMe. Uh, the data included things like names, account info, uh, genetic ancestry results, uh, the attacker uh, claimed they had as many as 7 million accounts for sale, ranging from a buck to 10 bucks, depending on how many of them you bought. Uh, and they claim that the CEO of 23andMe actually knew about this leak up to two months before. So we don't know all the details about how they got it, but signs point to credential stuffing attacks against some of the accounts and then abusing a feature in 23andMe called DNA relatives that's opt-in that basically lets you let other people find you based off their DNA, uh, DNA results so you can meet up and connect with people you might be related with. Well, it turns out if they compromise someone's account, they could then use that DNA relative's information to scrape all of the information out of anyone that is potentially genetically related to them, which is probably how they got to that 7 million account range from likely a smaller number of actual compromised accounts. Uh, I have a lot of things to say about this. Uh, the first being, I'm in general not a fan of these styles of websites. In period, It just feels like a pretty gross privacy violation that people don't realize how much info you're giving up to these organizations when you submit a DNA swab to them. And yeah, this I'm was only a matter of time until something like this happened where your genetic information and all your relative links, links leak out. Yeah. yeah, this is why I've only done it for my dogs. I actually, I mean, like any human being, I'm curious about this. I think uh, having this DNA history and analysis for yourself can tell you a lot about genetic diseases, things in your history you may not know about that can be used preventatively. But there's no way I'm going to submit my DNA to some rando little private vendor that started just 10 years ago and obviously doesn't know internet security was something like my my DNA, sorry, no way. Uh, I'll be like, scared when the government does it, but at least then maybe you'll have more rigorous security to it. 
So uh, I, I'm waiting personally on these genetic services. It's like Gattaca. If you have not watched Gattaca, go watch that. You don't want your DNA out there. And especially like from the privacy side of things too, like they already have relationships with law enforcement where there's been a few like criminals, but so you can argue this is a good thing, but it still creeps me out that they've been able to identify and capture criminals based off of their DNA siblings. evidence submitted by their siblings their loosely close relatives where, you know, their DNA was left at the, the crime scene. They figured out, okay, so that person is related to Jimmy Jones that submitted his DNA request. Let's go look at all of his relatives, figure out who was in the area, and look, oh, there's our criminal. So yeah, it's, yeah. man, I am all And that's if, if you're criminals. worried about, you know, Liberty and Big Brother, you know, I'm, I'm not a criminal, so I'm less worried about that. But now imagine if a threat actor has the same power. That's just dangerous. Yeah, it's just, uh, it weirds me out. And this was... This breach was inevitable, even not from necessarily 23andMe, but from someone. Like, there's a lot of data in there that's potentially valuable to hostile actors. So, I ugh, it, it grosses me out. Um, but they they do claim at least the data came from accounts compromised with credential stuffing. They point to MFA two-factor authentication is supported on 23andMe, and their users should be using that. I'd say something like your genetic information is probably serious enough to warrant using a multi-factor authentication to protect. Yeah, please. And uh, man, hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully this is the last of these big breaches uh, anytime soon. Uh, so moving on, uh, there's one last story I wanted to cover, and this is a kind of fun one uh, where I found this linked on a, a security-related subreddit where it was a blog post uh, about Grand Theft Auto Online, uh, which Grand Theft Auto V and Grand Theft Auto Online, if you're not familiar with it, is the second best-selling video game of all time. Uh, the author of this blog post notes they've sold 185 million units, coming in second only to Minecraft. That blows my mind. There's a lot of games I really like. Where oh, they by the way, you said 185 million, right? I, yeah. yeah, I think you did. Yes. Good. <laughs> There's a lot, lot of games I like that sell I like five or lot. six, and that's cause for celebration. 185 million is insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so Grand Theft Auto V comes with this kind of sandboxed online version of it called Grand Theft Auto Online. Uh, it's basically it's a city where you can like complete missions and you know buy cars and shoot guns and i don't know i'm actually giving it away that i've never played it uh, i'm familiar with grand theft auto i've just never <laughs> i've been, I've been playing auto. i've been playing this oh actually online you're right i have been playing grand theft auto 5 on my raw guy and previously my steam deck really good game for those portables by the way so uh, yeah. as if you they didn't need 185 more million copies to sell but uh the official servers for this technically don't exist there aren't real servers it's all peer-to-peer uh, where the publisher, Rockstar in this case, uh, they offer matchmaking to connect users together. And this limits Rockstar's ability to detect and prevent exploits on their official Grand Theft Auto Online, which has led to someone developing a private server back in 2015 called 5M, uh, which allows users to host their own servers and operate in a client-server model instead of peer-to-peer. Uh, they, it allows them to then expand and add customizability. So they support like setting up role-playing servers where instead of everyone being a criminal, some of you can pretend to be a cop. Some of you can pretend to be 
There's slightly more dudes gross that things. play fast for or fast food restaurant attendance like all day <laughs> for hours. I don't. The role playing servers are funny if you ever watch the YouTube videos. Yep. Um, but it also adds additional functionality too. Like for example, there's a in-game calling that some of these have added where there's like cell phones that exist in the game. They use your computer microphone and speakers and you can call and talk to other people on the servers. There's ones where like, Corey, you know when you pull up to a street light and the car next to you is blasting their music so loud that you can hear it like almost perfectly. They've yeah. got that as a feature in the game where when you drive by people, <laughs> you can hear the radio station that they are playing. Uh, specifically, cool. they can upload a YouTube or a SoundCloud link that get that that gets broadcasted to anyone that drives past them. Uh, so this architecture for this 5M server framework, uh, it's built on Chromium Embedded Framework or CEF. It's just basically taking the Chromium web browser and embedding it into other applications. It's basically on the back end, on the server side, it's using LUA scripts and C Sharp. And on the server side, using JavaScript to deliver everything. So the researcher found one feature in here um, called R-Core Radio Car, that one I mentioned about broadcasting a radio station that they decided to focus their efforts on. So it allows a player to specify a YouTube or SoundCloud link that then gets broadcasted from the music in their car to nearby players as you drive by them. And their first thought was, okay, can I leak player IP addresses by pasting in a URL that I control? And it turns out that was true. So as they drive around near players, their game client will make a request to that URL, and the attacker in that case can see where the request is coming from and get their Good IP reason address. reason to private VPN even while gaming, friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, and especially in the world of gaming, we just talked about DDoS attacks, and that is extremely popular to go after other people that you feel slighted by in your gaming spaces, so exposing someone's IP, IP address. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... The Chromium Embedded Framework exposes a debugging interface locally on a local port. So basically, they can see all of the scripts that are running locally on their side, and they were able to analyze the script that was responsible for playing that broadcast audio. Uh, they found that it effectively it takes that YouTube URL, grabs the YouTube ID off the back of it, uh, and then appends that directly to the DOM, using the DOM being like the JavaScript running locally. Uh, using the jQuery append function, uh, which with no validation means it's extremely easy cross-site scripting right there. Uh, so in their example, they created a intentionally broken image tag and then set the on error scripting function to go call out to a server under their control, download a JavaScript file, read it, and then pipe it into uh, eval, which then executes it. And that payload was basically a reverse shell to the local JavaScript that's running using WebSockets. And they drove their car around in the game. And in their little demo, they showed everyone uh, as they drive by them connecting to their uh, reverse proxy effectively uh, to the server under their control. Uh, it's pretty nuts basically broadcasting cross-site scripting attacks to everyone that you drive by in a game just like Conceptually wrapping your head around that is pretty dang entertaining. Uh, so they reviewed the code to look for any additional functionality that they could abuse in this case. They found a couple of functions relating to uh, reading and writing from the user's clipboard that bypassed Chromium's sandboxing um, and permissions model. Uh, they found that they could force users to send chat messages to other users through this local interface. 
Uh, they found they could abuse the banking system in here and basically tr force money transfers from users in the game. Um, they even found a function that changes the user's appearance. So you could literally drive around in a car, uh, blasting cross-site scripting attacks to people, stealing all of their money and like making them all go bald or change their hairstyle or whatever. Uh, this is the type of research I love in gaming. It's just super interesting. Uh, so they reported this issue to the package maintainer uh, for that, that radio feature, um, and it was actually fixed last year, but they found a lot of servers are still vo running vulnerable versions of this out there in the wild. Um, one other interesting tidbit, so this 5M server was actually acquired by Rockstar themselves uh, just a couple of months ago in August or so because it was becoming so popular as a private server model. So... Man, uh, this is and one stuff. of the risks of yeah of running this you know effectively custom you know not technically kosher code like private servers, and that you're relying on whatever local code you've got running to be up to snuff, and typically they're developed by a small team, not a professional organization of game developers. And let's face it, game modders are probably not secure, not in a bad way, but security is really not something they're probably thinking about. Yep, exactly. I guess that's probably not true. I, the same people that mod games probably cheat, so they probably know how to crack games and reverse things. So maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. Damn cheaters. <laughs> well, Corey, so you've never played Grand Theft Auto Online. You're mostly just the GTA V. I'm an old man, dude. I get pwned left and right. I, I actually have a day job. I can't play 12 hours a day online. So I, besides not wanting to play nine-year-olds, <laughs> which is just irritating, uh, no, I stick to single player. So I guess I do see people when I play. I think you can open it up so you occasionally see people on the single player, but I don't mm -hmm. do online much. It seems fun as heck. I just don't have... I don't have the time in the day. I have a real job. In researching this one, it did seem genuinely fun. And while I wouldn't role play as a fast food worker in this, like it'd be fun to no. be on the other side as an NPC, as like a cop or something, trying to stop all the criminals running around. Yeah. I don't know. And to be honest, without hurting people, I would love to drive around a car with my YouTube video that changes everyone to, I don't know, bananas or <laughs> Trump caricatures, whatever. I just, uh, this has got to be the first example of a radio station triggering a cross-site scripting attack. So pretty cool researcher from uh, this particular researcher. Pretty cool researcher. Pretty cool research from this particular researcher. Um, definitely recommend checking it out. Our and producer man, seems to think there's 30-year-olds online too, but I, I say there's uh, 12 nine-year-olds for every one of us. Accurate. Uh, that is absolutely accurate. I, there's a reason I don't enable voice chat in any game I do end up playing online. It's just, it's not fun anymore at all. But hey, I guess by the time you're listening to this, the weekend's already over. But for us, the weekend's almost here. Maybe I will go try out this uh, GTA online and see what all the hubbub's about. Works great on your uh, rogue ally. Rog, rogue, whatever Asus calls it. Asus, Asus. I can't pronounce any of their words. It's ROG, R-O-G. Asus ROG. Yep. Gotcha. Go get one. Nailed They're it. pretty cool. They're sweet. This episode sponsored by Asus. Yeah, this could be you. Just send us some money. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. 
If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on the site formerly known as Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Yay.